Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Friday, April the 28th. Been wanting to do this uh, this video for some time here with our good friend Barry Jacobson, military historian, also U.S. Uh, Special Forces veteran. And we're going to be looking at national security. There are some very serious national security problems that this administration faces. And uh, we'll look at Taiwan. We'll look at Ukraine. We'll look at Iran. And we'll look at uh, the volunteer army. So let me say hello to Barry. How are you, Barry? I am good, Silvio. Though, as you can see, for some reason, I can't get my camera to work. But uh, there's my avatar, which has my smiling face. And, you know, it, it's funny, but when you speak, it, it sort of like flashes. So it, it, it confirms that you're alive, I guess, that your avatar, <laughs> <laughs> that your avatar is for real. It, so, it has a pulse. My avatar is yeah, like, it has a pulse still. Exactly. It 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 flashes like you know in, in a rather interesting way. So, welcome. It's always a great honor to have you, and especially when we're talking about something that you know quite well. Why don't we begin with uh, not not a national security problem itself, but something that could become, and it's a combination of two things. First of all, the volunteer army is not recruiting soldiers at the moment. We're down on the numbers that we need. Of course, that could be a problem if we have to go to any any kind of military conflict. And I want to tie that in a little bit with the news this week that we may be, we're talking about electric tanks in the battlefield. So let me begin with that. Uh, Do you see a connection between wanting to have electric tanks and not recruiting enough soldiers, Barry? Well, the connection is that it's emblematic that this administration and today's military leadership is not serious. They're not serious about the military's role, uh, which is and always has been to kill the enemy and break their toys. You know, to, to kill people and destroy things, that's what the military is supposed to do. Uh, and ever since Obama, it has become a social experiment, and generals in the Pentagon and, of course, civilian administration are appointed by successive Democratic administrations, and unfortunately, even under Trump, uh, to promote a, a social agenda, to make the military reflect the, uh, the left-leaning changes in our society. So as we look at electrical vehicles, uh, you know, in, in the civilian world, there are, there are problems in the civilian world with EVs. There aren't, aren't enough charging stations here in the United States. There's not enough power in the grid to power all the cars they want to, you know, switch us over to. It's been estimated in California alone, just this one state, we'd have to 
start 20 new nuclear power plants, build and, and start up 22 plants uh, in the next 13 years just to provide enough power for the, the cars that we're going to bring online. That's just in California. So that's in a country which has the best infrastructure possibly, or at least among the best infrastructure and the best power grid in the world. But the military doesn't fight in Los Angeles, at least, at least it shouldn't. We hope it doesn't. The military fights in places like the deserts of Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, uh, Africa, places where there is no grid. So where are these electrical vehicles? And by the way, an EV uh, tank, the, 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 the Bradley fighting vehicle weighs about 27 tons, all by itself the way it is currently configured. And the Abrams tank is about double that, about 55 tons. Batteries are inherently very, very heavy. So you're going to increase dramatically not only the weight of that tank, but you're going to shorten the range of that tank. Because, I mean, cars only get a, uh, a short range on the battery power before you have to charge up, and a car is much lighter uh, and uses less power than a the military vehicle. A tank would we'd be lucky to get a, a tank to go five miles on charge. And it would be so heavy with the additional batteries attached to it that there's very few roads in the world that could support it, very few bridges that could support it. It's, it, it's in fact the same problem the German army had in World War II. They built these massive tanks like the Tiger II, the King Tiger, that was so heavy that roads couldn't support it. And a 55-ton tank adding another, gosh knows how many tons more of battery power to power this thing. First of all, you'd have to make the tank much bigger just to have room for the batteries. Then when it stops every few miles to recharge, a car can take up to an hour to recharge. These things could take 24 hours. So what are we going to tell the enemy? Stop from you know, stop firing us while we recharge our, ta our tanks? That's if we can find something to charge until where, where are we going to plug these in in the middle of Africa? Right in the middle of the deserts of Saudi Arabia, where, where's the charging stations going to be? Now, Barry, uh, just a quick, uh, just so that uh, I can understand, because I agree with what you're saying. I, but in, in the, right now, with the fossil fuels or the petroleum or diesel, how do we supply them? Do, do we, we have, as I understand, we have supply lines, right, that bring in diesel and trucks and all of that for these tanks, right? Yeah, there's there's a number of ways the military can refuel in a combat environment. Uh, one way is to run a line from a fueling station in the rear. You can actually lay pipes. You can lay pipe to get it towards the front. You have trucks that can carry fuel to the tanks and then refuel the tanks and other kinds of vehicles. Uh, in Desert Storm, we actually had helicopters flying fuel bladders uh, forward to the uh, forward operating units. So there's lots of ways you can move petrol, but you can't move electricity like that. Electricity has to have a power station, has a personalized has to have a grid. And these third world countries that we're going to be operating in, where combat tends right. to be, don't have a grid. Now, so, a rig, yeah, go ahead and finish. I had a question about tanks, but go ahead and finish your so thought. I'm just going to say that, you know, getting back to your original point, that this is just emblematic of a non-serious right. uh, approach to our military and to our national defense. Now, a regular tank, you know, just one of our regular tanks running on fuel, what is the range of, of that tank? A uh, uh, hundred miles, a couple hundred miles, uh, or less? Or what is the range? I'm well, just me, curious. That's a good question. Uh, basically, a range of a 
a few, you know, it, about 20 miles, 25 miles. I'm going to take a quick look here on that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so they're much more efficient, I guess that's what you're well, saying. Well, they are. They're much when, more When you're running with... I, I found uh, the Secretary of Energy's comments to be almost uh, ridiculous when I when I heard it. Uh, first of all, she's the Secretary of Energy. Uh, she <laughs> nothing to do with defense, uh, directly, that is. And it would have been interesting if there had been other people from the Defense Department there, because I don't think they would have agreed with her that... Uh, that that you know going electric by 2030 or whatever would make us uh, a better army and then and I thought it was interesting too what she was saying then we won't have to fight these wars over fossil fuels well yeah that that may be true but the reason we're fighting a a war over fossil fuels is because Putin got into you uh so you know that's uh I'm not sure that electric tanks are going to be stopping any any of that, but well, I agree I, with you. I looked, yeah. up, I looked up the numbers because yes. uh, I didn't have them off the top of my head, but the range of a fuel, fully fueled Bradley fighting vehicle is about 300 miles. And the range okay, so, of, a, of an Abrams tank is just a little bit less. It's about, 200 and, uh, about 265 miles. Right. So more room to go <laughs> a lot more uh, use out of a fossil, I mean, out of a truck running on on petroleum or diesel than you would running out of a battery. And the other point you made about the weight of those batteries, that's true too. Those batteries are very heavy. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just crazy, but it kind of ties in, Barry, to what you said about uh, the Army not being serious, because I think that is having an impact on recruiting. I really do. I think a lot of young people are looking at this Army and they're going, you know, that's not my dad's army to to use that. Uh, remember the commercial, the Oldsmobile? That's not my my grandfather's Oldsmobile. But I think a lot of young people are looking at this army and they don't want to be any part of it, which is terrible. It's a terrible thing to say, especially uh, when when I'm talking to somebody like you who's a veteran who actually served this country as well as you did or my son who volunteered to go into the army 10 years ago, Barry. Yeah, you know the the military is a uh, is a team. Every every unit within that military, whether it's the Marines, Army, Air Force, whatever, Navy, uh, you're broke up into teams, and you have jobs to do as a team. Uh, morale is very important. You have to trust the person next to you. And the military, as I am hearing, and my son is in the military currently, uh, People are afraid to even talk to each other because they may use the wrong pronoun. They may say the wrong thing. They could lose their career over something being misunderstood. We used to kid each other mercilessly. And, uh, you know, the military was always sort of a, a raucous, uh, you know, you, well, sort, sort of Sort of thing. like a locker room kind of atmosphere, Very much so. you know, where, where there's a lot of kidding around, but there's a lot of teamwork. You know, there's a... And, and you can't you can't be worried that you know you're gonna get reported by the female or male next to you because you you misgender them somehow. You know, I, I, something interesting happened this the last couple of days. The the NFL draft was yesterday and today, or and of course the day before that. I think today is the third day or or so. Um, and I noticed something in the NFL draft. There was no women drafted. There were uh, no transgender dra players drafted. Right. Thank God. 
there, there was almost all, in the first uh, round, there was almost all African-Americans drafted, very few whites. Right. Where's all the Asian players? What I'm getting at is that something as frivolous as a game, in football, as much as I enjoy football, it is just a game. The, the, the stakes are not high. You know, if you lose, you lose bragging rights. That's all you lose. Right, right. Uh, we understand that it's a meritocracy. We understand that the best players have to be allowed to, you know, take those positions. The smartest guys have to coach, uh, have to lead. Uh, the military is the opposite of a sport in that the stakes could not be higher. When you lose a war, you lose sometimes everything. You can lose your freedom. You can lose your country. Mm-hmm. You can lose your life, of course. Uh, and yet we somehow have lost the idea of a meritocracy in the military. Right. We've forgotten the fact that war is for keeps. Right. And well, the, the, other the, only, thing, the only job is to win. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's right. No, that's right. I was just going to say another concern, too, that you're hearing is, you know, young women in the military, obviously there's a lot more now, uh, having to share a bathroom, for example, gender or something like that, that creates, you know, that that it is not uh, not very healthy for for the kind of teamwork that you need to have. So uh, I just, you know, this is something that concerns me a great deal bit happening with the military because it kind of ties in to the other national security issues that we're going to be talking about where we may have to use the military. And if we're short like this, I guess about the only thing left would be a draft, uh, Barry. Well, yeah, and and by the way, the recruiting numbers are about 25% short. Yes, that's a lot. Uh, it's a lot. And uh, we're probably not getting the, the kind of people we want. I'm sure we're getting some. But uh, when the, the whole focus of the military is let's recruit you so you can be all you, all you want to be. It's all about self-fulfillment. It's, it's my dream to be in the military whether I'm qualified or not, so the military has to make way for me. You know, uh, the military is, is not a place for you to actualize whatever identity you think you have. The military is a place where we, you go to serve the, the country and its goals. And if, if necessary, lay down your life for it. Uh, there are high standards, or there should be high standards to get in the military. And uh, it, it's bad enough that such a large percentage of men in this country, young men, can't meet those standards. Right. Uh, but we're at, when we start adding in transgendered issues and, and women in, in, the, in combat roles, there is a place for women and has been for some time in uh, non-combat branches of the military, and that's fine. Uh, women can do many things as well or better than men. The one thing they can't do as well as men is fight. Mm-hmm. Men, women don't have the physicality that men have. That's why we have women's sports. That's why transgendered men competing in women's sports are dominating. Uh, because God made two genders and the male gender, uh, for all our flaws, the one thing he gave us is, uh, is a stronger, faster, uh, physicality and a more aggressive physicality. That's right. No, I I think you're exactly right. And, And I think that does, that does come in into, you know, when people are considering, you know, a career in the military or going in as a volunteer, I think these are factors that young people are are thinking about, you know, the, the culture is very important. You know, I remember when our son went in, it was all about patriotism. It was all about serving the country. And that's because, you know, he had that attitude. 
And I'm not sure a lot of the young people do that now, which is a shame, I, I believe. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of what's going on. Let me begin with Ukraine, because that's been in the news quite a bit for about a year. We we were told, Barry, uh, or at least we, we, we thought, that things in Ukraine were going very well for Ukraine. And I don't I don't care their willingness to fight and defend their country, but apparently it's not going well uh, against uh, the larger Russian army. Uh, is, is that your understanding of it right now, uh, Barry? I, I can't give you a clear picture because there, there really is not one right now. The Russian sources are saying one thing. NATO sources are saying something else. Uh, the Ukrainians are apparently uh, across the, the Dnieper River in the south. Uh, and this is in preparation for a spring uh, offensive. You know, the, the, the governing factor in that part of uh, the world, uh, meaning Russia and the Ukraine uh, region, Ukraine, the country, is, uh, is the rains that come in spring and the rains that come in the fall. Uh, every invader, every war that has taken part place in, in that, that part of the world, uh, the fighting stops in the late uh, winter when the snows thaw and uh, everything turns to mud when the snows thaw, and that's that's around April. And then it begins to harden again uh, in May and June. Keep in mind, most of the roads in the, that part of the world are, are not paved. They weren't paved when Hitler invaded. They weren't paved when Napoleon marched in. They're still not paved. Right. And so uh, all fighting basically stops in the spring, and then it has to stop again when the Rodina, uh, the, the, the autumn rains come in uh, October sometimes late, as late as November, sometimes earlier in, in September, but the, eventually the rains come and turn, once again, the ground into mud. So the Ukrainians have crossed the Dnieper River in the last week and established a bridgehead, which is good. Uh, and that indicates they're going to launch an offensive to try to regain uh, ground in the south and try to cut the land bridge that the Russians have established across the south connecting Crimea uh, to Russia. Uh, how successful it will be, it, it depends on a lot of factors, which no one can guess at. Uh, morale is a factor. Ukrainians seem to have high morale. We're giving them better equipment. Probably not enough of it, though. And ultimately, uh, you know, I've written about this. Ultimately, God sides with the big battalions, meaning that, uh, as Lenin said, quantity has a quality all its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russians have always had quantity, even when they didn't have quality. Uh, most of the people who have lost a war to Russia had, could, go into, could say they went into that war with a better army, uh, with better soldiers, and yet they lost. Mm-hmm. Because eventually you get ground down, and when you bring in your second string, maybe the Russians are bringing in their fourth string, but they, are, they also have fifth, sixth, and seventh string waiting right. in the wings, which That's you right. don't. That's right. Uh, but it is a it is a conflict that at least for the time being is like you say no, nobody really knows but it's in a standstill kind of situation and then the pressure is on the United States and NATO to keep funding them with weapons and I think a lot of people in the Congress are asking the question you know how much longer can we do this uh, you know that's another thing that Putin is counting on the fact that we're going to run out of patience. Uh, funding this conflict, uh, Barry? Well, we always do, don't we? And uh, there's there's probably a reason that we should uh, put a, you know, a, a stop date on these conflicts. No conflict should be open-ended. 
uh, unless it's a fight for the survival of your country, and this is not a fight for our survival. However they want to paint it, however the, the media, the Ukrainians, uh, NATO, whoever, try to say this is our war, that uh, they're fighting the Russians so we don't have to, or they're fighting the Russians there so Poland doesn't have to, or NATO doesn't have to. That's hyperbole, Silvio. Uh, the Russians don't have the military muscle, as we're seeing, to even take on the Ukraine, much less, uh, much less the rest of Europe. That's right. Their, their economy is about the size of Italy's. Germany, if it had the will, which it doesn't, but if Germany had the will, they could outproduce by themselves the Russians. Uh, so, you know, it, it is not our fight. I'm all for helping the little guy, but it can't be open-ended. Right. And it's, a, it's, it's very costly, given some of the other challenges that we have at the moment. Well, let's go to chi China and Taiwan. That's a lot more complicated. That has not happened, but there's a lot of talk that it could happen. And how how complicated would that be? Or would you have the same scenario of the larger army versus the smaller army, Barry, that you just said about Ukraine? Uh, I'm going to start by saying there's a lot of caveats to what I'm about to say. Uh, there are a lot of un, uh, unknowables at this point. Uh, first of all, China vastly outnumbers Taiwan in military power. Uh, Taiwan has 27, or sorry, 26 ships. Uh, China has a fleet of 87 uh, vessels nearby, and a total fleet of over 340 ships in the in the region. So, in ships alone, they're vastly outnumbered. In aircraft, uh, Taiwan has about 750 to China's 3,000, roughly close to 3,000. Uh, in manpower, it's, it's even more astronomically in favor of China. But that said, uh, terrain favors the Taiwanese. Uh, there's a hundred mile, roughly a hundred mile straight between the two, and, and crossing that body of water is the most difficult aspect of the operation as far as the Chinese are concerned. So it's not a give me that they'll be able to take Taiwan, and if they do take it, it certainly could be very costly, much like Russia going into the Ukraine. Or into also, Ukraine. Uh, if I may just jump in for a second, there's the economic, I mean, with Taiwan, the, the economic factor is much greater than with Ukraine. I mean, with, with, Taiwan has all these chips that we need. And uh, so I would think that we would be more compelled to defend Taiwan than Ukraine. Would that be right? Because of the economic needs of these chips and all of that. Well, you're, you're, you're applying common sense, and that always gets you in trouble. Uh, because our foreign policy is seldom dictated by common sense or American interests, for that matter. Yes, Taiwan is, it's more in our interest to defend Taiwan for the very reason you just said. Also, because if you look geographically at the area, at the region, uh, China wants to break out into the uh, Pacific Ocean. They want to dominate the Western Pacific. But geographically, they're hemmed in by Taiwan, uh, 100 miles off their coast by uh, islands to their south and to the north, which are owned by Japan and disputed by other countries in the south. Uh, and there's, of course, South Korea up there, too, in their, to their north. So there are factors, uh, geographic factors, that dictate they want to take Taiwan as a precursor to breaking out into the Central Pacific. Uh, so that said, uh, China, 
for many other reasons. China wants to take Taiwan, but that's a compelling reason. It's also a compelling reason we should defend Taiwan because we don't want them to do that. Okay. We, uh, go ahead. I have a question uh, about Taiwan. No, we do not have a defense treaty with a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. We don't with Ukraine either because they're not part of NATO. But as you may remember, uh, you know, when Nixon went to China, you know, that famous Shanghai communique or whatever it was called. I mean, we never, you know, we've always recognized the so-called People's Republic of China and Taiwan has always been there. But we've never gone to Congress to a resolution, let's say, to defend Taiwan. So on what basis would President Biden have the authority to defend Taiwan? I mean, it makes sense, I, I understand, to do it. But you would think that if we're going to be defending Taiwan in a, in a future war, wouldn't it make sense for the president to explain that to the nation? Because he really hasn't, Barry. Uh, well, that same argument should have been used vis-a-vis Ukraine. We had no resolution to defend the Ukraine from Congress. Biden did not go to Congress. That said, Congress obviously supports the war for the most part. Um, but in an emergency basis, if the Chinese were to invade Taiwan tomorrow, and I think within the next three years, they are going to invade Taiwan. Uh, certainly whoever is the president when they do could use emergency powers and do what needs to be done before Congress can uh, take the time to, to give them the resolution supporting that action. Is it in our best interest? Yes. We do not want China breaking out into the Central Pacific uh, we don't want China taking over the uh, the, the chip market, uh, the semiconductor market, which they work as right now Taiwan is the largest producer of semiconductors. Joe Biden said something very interesting the other day. He said uh, uh, China it, it doesn't worry him. China's not of concern. Okay. Uh, which was an idiotic <laughs> remark. If, right. if China doesn't concern you, then what does? Because that is the big bad. Right. China is the most ex- potentially ex- ex- existential threat to the United States we face uh, at least since World War II. Right. Now, you can say the Cold War, we, we faced nuclear oblivion at the hands of the Soviets. Okay. Um, but that was actually less likely than a conflict with China. Right. And with, with China, not only are you, not only are they a threat in, in Taiwan, but they're expanding into Latin America. Look at the Brazilians and the Chinese doing a, a trade deal and basically just, you know, going around the U.S. dollar and using the Chinese currency. So, I mean, they have plans of expansion. Now, it's not just Taiwan where they want to expand. They want to expand in a lot of countries. So if President Biden doesn't understand that, well, maybe that's another reason not to reelect them, I guess. Well, be. you know, China's got the string of pearls uh, initiative across the globe. And basically, it's uh, to establish uh, economic ties with countries and through those ties, then uh, establish bases. Yes. Uh, they, they, have, they have controlling interests in most of the mineral rights throughout, throughout Central Africa, right. particularly the Congo, where a lot of these uh, you know, rare earth minerals needed for future technology uh, exist. And well, China's model is very simple. They go into a country. Uh, they did this, for instance, in Thailand. They're going to country and say, we're going to give you X amount of billions of dollars for to build infrastructure. And, and really, a lot of that goes right into the pockets of whatever oligarch or group of oligarchs rule that country. 
but then they get in return concessions. And those concessions in Thailand, for instance, is we get 50% of your rice output because rice is, of course, what China needs to feed their burgeoning population. In uh, Congo, it's uh, we get mineral concessions. So we control your rare earth minerals. Uh, so China is economically uh, overpowering the world, not just the United States. Right. And they're working on militarily uh, becoming the dominant power as well. There comes a point in, in, in the affairs of nations, if you will, where one aging power is supplanted by another. And that aging power realizes that either it really only has two choices, either fights or gives up without a fight. Um, and we're, we're getting to the point now where if we do nothing, we're going to lose. Right. We're going to lose dominance in the world to China. That's right. Uh, One last point I wanted to bring up, and I, by the way, Barry, I, I, I'm very sorry that we couldn't get your video to work, but I'm hoping that we do this more often. So, and maybe the next time we can, we can actually see you, but, uh, but I can hear you great and you look great on your picture, whatever that. <laughs> That is. That looks like a profile picture for like Facebook or something. Yeah, it's so. actually right off my political campaign. If you, if you oh, go to okay. my political website, that's one of the pictures. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that yeah, you look like you, it looks great. I mean, I like it. I just wish that you could move your mouth so I could actually see <laughs> see you talking. You know, because uh, sometimes it's hard to interview a, a still picture. You know what I mean? Because when you when you're when you're seeing the other person, you know you, it's easier not to interrupt, you know. So that uh, so forgive me if I interrupted you at some point. But the last point I wanted to bring up was Iran and the nuclear weapon. You know that I guess that problem has existed for several administrations. Do you think it's a serious problem or something that the, the Biden administration may have to deal with? Uh. That's a question. Will they deal with it if it comes up? And that's uh, my answer would probably be no. Biden doesn't really deal with anything, um, uh, except where he seems to have been bought and sold, like the Ukraine or China. One of the reasons I think he's ignoring China is because he's made a lot of money out of China, and uh, it's not in his interest right now to rile them up. But let's talk about Iran. Iran uh, is enriching uranium to near weapons grade levels. Uh, you can ask the Israelis or other people how soon they'll get it and they'll, you'll get different answers. But let's just assume if we don't do anything and if we restrain Israel so that Israel does nothing, that Iran will eventually get a bomb. And eventually it could be a month from now. It certainly will be less than two years from now. So what happens at that point? Well, best case scenario is they act like Pakistan uh, and India who are the last ones to join the nuclear club uh, and they do nothing with it except puff out their chest and, and say now we're part of the club. Uh, they have bragging rights, if you will. But uh, if you look at the nature of the Iranian regime, which, by the way, the leaders uh, are all aging, uh, all getting old, their population is turning against them. These are true believers, Silvio. These, these aren't the old oligarchs of the Soviet Union that just want to get rich uh, and retire on their dacas and uh, eat caviar, drink vodka, and you know, have affairs with women their their granddaughter's age. That that's not them. These are fanatics who believe that their mission in life is to bring about the return of the Mahdi. And for those of your listeners who haven't heard us talk about this in the past, and we have several times, 
there's a branch of Shia Islam that believes that their Messiah, they call the Mahdi or the, the expected one or the 12th Imam, there's different names for him, uh, that he'll return and save the world. But before he can do that, the, the infidel has to be purged and the Mahdi has to be uh, ushered in with fire and blood. That's them, not me, saying that. Uh, what better way to purge the infidel and, and usher in the Mahdi uh, with fire and blood than nuclear weapons? Right. We are the great Satan that has to be purged, and Israel is the lesser Satan. So I think if they get nuclear weapons, there is a uh, better-than-even chance that they will consider using them, on Israel at least, and maybe on us as well. Right. Well... Quite a, quite an interesting uh, evening with you, uh, Barry, and uh, I like to do this more often. I know we, we used to do it before. I hope we can do it more often and look at some of these national security issues because uh, I continue to say that national security is going to be a huge topic in 2024. Uh, it hasn't been yet, but it's going to get. Any of these four things that we talked about tonight could get very problematic very quickly for the Biden administration if it isn't already. So any one of these could be, you remember the 1980 campaign with President Carter and all the problems he had, everything just happened at once. And I fear that that could happen again. And if it did, uh, this would be the topic of 2024. This would be what the 2024 election would really be about as, um, as well as everything else that is on the table, Barry. Without a doubt. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have a, a Ronald Reagan you know, waiting in the wings. No. Uh, you know, I, I like Trump, what Trump did as president, but uh, he's not Ronald Reagan. And uh, Ron DeSantis, I like him, too. Yeah. Uh, I think he'd be a good president. I'm not sure he can get elected uh, with Donald Trump standing between him and the and the general election. Right. But we, we need to, as uh, the opposition to the current regime, and I, I think of us as that, uh, you know, we, we need to find a way to uh, reverse the decline of the United States because the United States, as Lincoln said, is still the last best hope for mankind. Right. Uh, unfortunately, we're becoming more like China and less like the United States you and I grew up in. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, Barry, thank you so much uh, for your profile photo and for your voice tonight. And... <laughs> I hope that uh, we can uh, work it out the next time so we can see the video. And I hope that it, it happens very quickly because I enjoy these conversations with you a great deal. Uh, I always learn oh, a great deal you. from you. always you learn so a lot from you and, and always enjoy chatting with you as well. So thank you for, so much. Uh, this will go up on YouTube uh, in a few minutes, and I'll send you the link, uh, Barry, so you can see yourself in a still photo. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, you have a great night and uh, thank night you. your listeners. Thank you so much, Barry. Thank you so much. Um, our friend uh, Barry Jacobson uh, always had a lot of fun with him to, before when we did a lot of our, our podcast, and I hope that we can do a lot more of these uh, in, in the future. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, and we'll talk to you later. Bye bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.